Hi, this is Mike Zapsick from a Shared Universe Podcast Studio, and you're listening to Talking Codswalla Podcast. Hey, it's Taylor from Calling the Shots. Hey, this is Steve from Calling the Shots. Hey, what's up? It's Mike from the Pizza Beer Revolution Podcast. Hi, this is uh, Derek D from PBR Podcast and DerekD.com, of course. And you are listening to Talking Codswallop. Talking Codswallop. How you guys doing? This is great. This is the POTUS. It's President of the United States, Donald. You're looking to wild up the swelling. That's what you're listening to. It's great. I got to tell you, the swallop of the wall is great. I love walls. And the cod wallop, it's swallop. Fantastic. You're listening to it. Wallops, cods. Fish, walls, swallows. Welcome to this week's Talking Cods Wallop. I am Gemma. I'm James. And if you can hear it irritating buzzing noise in the background, I'm ever so sorry. That is my fridge. Uh, well, fridge freezer. So did try to turn it off. But if it's still there in the background, I'm ever so sorry. But I'd rather have that noise than food poisoning. So <laughs> we established uh, that that was the better idea, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it all adds to the experience. It gives you a realistic uh, insight into what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And this is obviously the uh, coronavirus um, home edition where, well, me and James do our, you know, everybody's sort of faffing about how how hard it is to record using Skype, but we've been doing it for years, James. We're pros at this now, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, the the lockdown edition is absolutely no uh, no different, no uh, problem for us at all. It's exactly <laughs> the same as every other recording. Yeah, exactly. Because otherwise, we'd have to drive to Birmingham every day to you know every time, <laughs> or probably yeah, maybe Birmingham, maybe a little bit further south. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, whistling on, but um, basically, this is a little intro episode or a little intro part to this week's episode, because James had a very, very interesting guest on the show. So, James, do you want to tell us a little bit about the chappie who you uh, interviewed? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I can do is I'll give you a uh, full uh, history, and it's only a very quick potted history, though, into how I actually met this uh, this man. Okay. So it actually goes back many, many years. My mother and her friend Linda, uh, they were on a work placement together mm -hmm. in Manchester. Uh, and our family friend Linda lived with a lady called Ruth, and they, they would all sort of spend time together. Now, years before I was born, my parents went on a road trip throughout the eastern uh, you know, states of the United States, and they also went to Canada and the Niagara Falls and things. And while they were doing that, the friend Ruth came with them all. Anyway, Ruth, uh, as I understand it, she's Chinese and she went back to China and uh, she married a man called Jerry. And they stayed in contact with our family friend, uh, Linda, but they didn't sort of see... They, my parents hadn't really seen them for ages. Anyway, there was a reunion in London, uh, but at that point it was just my dad who went because unfortunately my mother was very unwell. Uh, but they went... You know, they were in London. They had a, uh, a get-together, and that was like the first time my dad had properly met Jerry, and he got to have the nice reunion with them all. Anyway, 
flashing forward from that, because that'd be sort of around probably five, six, seven years ago, and I reckon this was probably about three years ago, Ruth and Jerry very well travelled to go around the world, and they'd met up with Linda again, and they went, they, they all came over to, to spend time in the UK, and when they were there, they wanted to go to Liverpool, so they went around Liverpool, my father's house in Liverpool from when he used to work in Liverpool, so they all spent time there. And I was asked whether I'd come down and see Linda and get to meet Ruth and Jerry, because I'd never met them, mm. even though you know they'd been friends of the family. I'd never actually met them. And we're all sat round in the uh, the kitchen area having a, a cup of, well, coffee in my case, and tea and whatnot, and we're talking about stuff. And my dad goes, oh, yeah, you, you, you do know Jerry uh, used to work as a, a producer, right? And I'm like, no. He's going, yeah, you're uh, you're into podcasting. Jerry would be a really good guest for your podcast. Why don't you uh, see if he'd be up for an interview? And he was, lo and behold, up for an interview. So what you'll get to hear is Jerry talking about the the work he did setting up so like the Chinese media company that did all their TV work and things. And not to spoil what's going to come ahead too much, he was talking about his work on a film called Infernal Affairs, which then became, to the Western world, an even bigger known film. And we'll leave it at that. Wow. So you can listen and find out more. I'll tell you what, James. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, James has really got those connections. Everybody, obviously, you know, now he's got his glory hole business as well. So it's, uh, <laughs> maybe there'll be a few more connections. But no, you do. You seem to be quite a, well. In some ways, you're an unlucky person, but in other ways, you're quite a lucky person that you know, you know the right kind of people. So that is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one thing that's really funny is whilst they think she was being undertaken because mm-hmm. uh, I remember once mentioning it to somebody they said wow where did you interview the person and the answer was quite simple I interviewed Jerry at my dad's house in the living room <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't in some sort of big office somewhere but while all this was going on in the kitchen of the house we had Linda uh, who is uh, of Sicilian descent, mm-hmm. whipping up this amazing uh, Sicilian sort of feast that we had, all these different dishes. Ruth whipping up a lot of different Chinese dishes. They were competing to get all the food out. And all I can, I was talking to my dad about this earlier today, and we have this abiding memory of spending lovely time with them and having this amazing meal that was a mixture of Italian and Chinese stuff and there was mounds of it. It was wonderful. Oh god. There was absolutely mounds of it. <laughs> it Next time they're over, can you invite me please? Because that sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it was certainly an experience. But yeah, getting to talk to Jerry and learn about the things he's worked on and been part of was just absolutely amazing. I'm hoping uh, the salty tadpoles will enjoy it too and find it uh, of some interest. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will too, because I found it really interesting when I was listening to the audio. Obviously, I just felt that it needed a little intro, so which is what we're doing now. So before we get on to the actual episode, I just wanted to also say a quick thank you to all of the salty tadpoles as well for for bearing with me. Well, bearing with us, but bearing with me more than uh, James, because obviously you guys had to wait an extra week for an episode and there wasn't any fuss. There wasn't, you know, everybody was so supportive and I am feeling much better now. I don't know if it was coronavirus or if it was anything else, but, you know, basically I I wasn't very well. To me, it actually felt like I had bronchitis rather than anything else, but 
Either way, I felt absolutely awful. And to know that the support was out there and everybody was uh, willing to wait and weren't angry or anything like that, then that was actually really appreciated. So thank you ever so much, Saucy Tadpoles. We'll give you a little round of applause. Applause, even. <laughs> so without... Any more further delay, James, should we get on to the interview? I think we should. Okay, so the next voice that you're about to hear is our special guest, Jerry. Enjoy the episode! Hi, James. It's nice talking with you. I'm Jerry. Jerry Liu from Hong Kong. Um, A company that I co-founded in the early 90s produced a firm called Inferno Affairs back in year 2001 and uh, was a bit of a success in Hong Kong but more interestingly was subsequently licensed to be remade into the American film by the name of Departed that went all the way to win a few Oscars I believe the year was in 2006. Yeah. So that was quite some time ago, of course, and memories are fading. <laughs> but uh, I did have a small role to play as I was one of the founders of the company. I was not involved in the creative process. I was more involved with the funding side mm-hmm. of the production initially and some of the distribution and legal work after the film was completed and uh, we started uh, organizing activities related to overseas sales. I think that was how I would remember my involvement Mm. with the film back in the year 2002, I would think. And when it comes to... My question would be almost like a crash course running (laughs) through it, but how does the production process start? How did you become aware of the script and the story and what grabbed your attention to produce it? Hmm. Well, the company that produced the film, the company that I co-founded with a few other colleagues of mine from older days um, in the film industry, um, each of the founders have certain specialised skills Mine's really in corporate finance and funding. And uh, two of my uh, colleagues are very involved in production and are friendly with the creative personnel, including writers and directors um, active in Hong Kong. The script was brought to the attention of one of my partners, he liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, he has, at that point already, a good working relationship with the creative team that ultimately became the writer, director, and producer team. Um, but he knew right away, based on the story, is um, we would need some well-known cast. Yes to uh, to be involved because it would be a bit of a waste Some, perhaps if you have a good story but you are unable to really promote it for lack of yeah. like you know, big names that could draw the audience into the cinema to see it 
It was interesting because back in 2001, in the middle of that year, I was in fact um, able to bring in a strategic investor into the holding company of um, the media group and uh, this particular investor actually ha enjoys very good relationship with the on-screen talents in Hong Kong because his family used to actually own a television license in Hong Kong and therefore he was familiar with the people both on-screen and behind the screen and he came in as an important investor at that point and was able to use his connections and networking to bring in of course the two very popular actors mm -hmm. involved in the production of Inferno Affairs and uh, as a result it was much easier to promote the film to the public mm -hmm. um, when it was ready to be shown uh, theatrically in Hong Kong and the rest was history. I mean the film actually was immediately received very good response critically as well yeah. and uh, so in terms of the traditional Chinese language film market of Hong Kong, certain parts of mainland China, Taiwan and Southeast Asia with the Chinese community, um, we did well with the post theatrical sales in Hong Kong. What really surprised us was that when we took the film, the film was released in Hong Kong theatrically around Christmas time. Right. It was a big um, holiday slot. So it was ready to be marketed at the American film market in Los Angeles yes. in February. And the distribution team went there in an effort of licensing the distribution right of the movie for various territories including the North American yes. territory which if I remember correctly was subsequently picked up by Miramax I thought, yeah I thought it was Miramax yes but interestingly enough we actually got an offer from Warner Brothers right. to acquire the remake rights which was something entirely different from what we are we were used to when it comes to the uh, sales or exploitation of the copyright. And it had been different to the way Mar Miramax did it as well, because Miramax not was in no way as big as Warner Brothers was it. It was kind of looking at more independent, smaller films. It was initially. It was actually from a company then uh, owned by Brad Pitt. Oh. Would, so we assume that either himself or people working with him for that company was interested but they had very strong working relationship at that point with Warner Brother and Warner Brother was more familiar with the legal arrangements of licensing in the remake rights so they were doing it actually via Warner Brothers and one thing leads to another and before we knew it, um, the producer working on behalf of Warner were a, um, 
was able to actually get Martin Scorsese on board as the director that, and a, part producer. Big, uh, <laughs> and once that yeah. name has been attached to the project, um, then the rest of the talents really came on board. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were not too surprised that DiCaprio yeah. um, took the uh, took the offer to play the lead, but we were more than pleasantly surprised when Jack Nicholson yes. came on board. I mean, yeah. that was not anticipated. And I don't know it's, uh, uh, what stroke of luck, I mean, that the project had in order, in the sense that, you know, he was happy to be attached to to the belt. And the rest just followed, really. So it all fell into place pretty much after that. Did you, when it obviously went into the more global aspect of things, when it got into the American market, did you get any involvement in any sort of the press, things like that, or were you...? I believe there were instances where they would want to know a bit more about the original Hong Kong creative team mm-hmm. and how they would see certain uh, themes or uh, storytelling issues and which they might find interesting in the eventual marketing package. but. Obviously, I mean, the creative process was entirely um, in the forecourt of Scorsese and his team. Um, I I forgot whether, uh, I think it was Ron Bass that was the writer. I wasn't sure maybe it was somebody else. But obviously, the writer was also Mm -hmm. a very experienced writer. So they... They were they worked with the materials. We were somewhat surprised when the mm-hmm. film finally came out. Was the degree of I mean I wouldn't say it. I I'm hesitant to say that they have remained very faithful to the original um, original uh, version of Inferno Affairs. But I think they made the creative decision mm-hmm. to stick to the narrative. Uh, of the original um, without trying to perhaps make it too Americanized. So in that sense, we were quite happy about Mm -hmm. uh, the degree of familiarity that that we felt when we first saw Departed. Well, Media Asia is this interesting film company that was started by a number of colleagues of mine at the point when we were working for a conglomerate which had uh, the first operation via satellite um, of multi multi channel mm-hmm. uh, satellite delivery capacity and that was the time of early 1990s mm-hmm. with funding from Hong Kong and the two principal market that we were exploring via the satellite was mainland China and India mm-hmm. both had problem but difficulties yeah. should I say in terms of making entry um, in the case of mainland China of course ideological concerns yes. uh, 
by broadcasts that is located outside of mainland. In the case of India, it was then a very heavily regulated environment with the Indian government playing a very strong role in providing uh, national broadcasts television broadcast mm. services, not unlike the BBC yeah. and the ITV in the UK. So um, the ability to for these cable operators on the ground in India illegally <laughs> receiving yeah. the issue at the signals and suddenly rebroadcasting it was something that I believe the consortium that I was working with then, happy to see, but would not come out openly yes, and say, oh, wow, right in it. But as it turned out, it worked extremely well in India, and it worked extremely well in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. But despite the fact that it's a smaller market, was economically re fairly developed, mm -hmm. and as a, uh, as a broadcaster, based in Hong Kong with certain services in the Chinese language we were able to do quite well in Taiwan. Mm. Um, the initial success of these two markets then contribute to a stabilizing process where we were able to put together a more credible story for a an entry into the mainland Chinese market mm. by phrases including setting up of joint ventures with mainland uh, control entities. And that evidently was something that News Corporation and uh, was very keen to mm -hmm. explore. And um, the Murdoch enterprise uh, was of the view that this smallest Hong Kong operation was worth acquiring. So the sales pitch worked well. Um, so that was what happened and then we suddenly realized that uh, the company of this satellite broadcast service have, has been sold to News Corporation and we were given a choice of whether to stay with the new owner or uh, to be let go and mm. do something else and a number of us decided to leave but uh, at the same time negotiate a program supplied agreement with the new owner such yeah. that they would have more Chinese content and what we did was of course in, in this case the production of um, Chinese language titles and yeah. also representing the new owner in the distribution of a very very um, prolific Chinese language movie library for overseas sales so that was how we started and obviously that would be more interest to looking at it from a Chinese government point of view to be more interested in something like that Yes. Sort of saying we're going to flood the market with something that's a for, uh, you know foreign product. Absolutely. Well, it was interesting because I mean, a few of us, obviously, we all love, we, we all love films. We're happy that we were able to work in that context, and it was the first time that any of us 
um, came out on our own and basically uh, run the company uh, with our own uh, capital and, and of course I mean uh, the whole process was quite a liberating one because we have only ourselves to answer for yes. and in the early 90s we of course look back at all the interesting work that were being done by none other than Channel 4 in the case of low budget yes. um, productions that could that in a way you know would also be uh, highly desirable for television broadcasts at some stage later on so that was what we set out to do and uh, we were producing low budget movies on a volume basis for Star TV which is of course the um, satellite surface that um, Murdoch had acquired um, and uh, we had some successes but not to the extent that we were able to really create enough of that focus for the mainstream audience to take the company's product more seriously other than the more marginal um, film buff type yes. of audience so internal Infernal Affairs <laughs> was actually our breakthrough product yes. project in the sense that we were able to m marry both a strong script with a popular cast yes. whereas before we were not able to afford no. bringing in the more established talents you know and it's like you were saying also mm -hmm. it's about the ability to get um, a more established cast because you see with certain films like there's a there was a, a film that came out in the 80s um sort of low budget horror film called phantasm well that was the 70s uh, but the 80s sequel uh yeah i think universal picked it up and demanded that they cast a star name of some sort within the film to i think it depends on how one wished to grow the company in one sense i think um certainly media asian the little company that we co-founded um, in 1994 we were happy for the first few years to remain relatively small mm -hmm. and without a lot of too much of commercial pressure to be successful all the time but I think after, when the opportunity came about to work with more popular cast bigger budget um for us it was like yeah let's give it it's a, a no try grader, isn't it? yeah, but let's give it a try yeah. because we could always go back to producing on a relatively modest budget basis but we'll see how it goes as it turned out we were able to ride on the success of Infernal Affairs two well one prequel and one yes. sequel yes. came out um, I personally rather enjoyed the uh, prequel mm -hmm. um, and I hate it the sequel. <laughs> but I mean, you do, these things are, you know, I mean, what 
sometimes happen in a creative process that somehow would have its own uh, momentum or demons and uh, but I I still think that the whole creative team behind the Infernal Affairs trilogy um, is a group of very committed and talented mm. filmmakers and I am glad to have worked with them on that basis well they couldn't if they weren't talented they wouldn't be able to produce the amazing product they produce so. well it, it was interesting to follow the career because it is actually in the case of the Hong Kong team um, three principles involved um, and uh the most senior of them uh, became somebody who works on very large-scale yeah. co-production uh, that target the mainland Chinese market, which of course has grown many, many times. So he's very well positioned to be doing really big budget titles. The other two junior partners of that creative trio, one of them is a director, the other being a writer, remain working on, I wouldn't say low budget film, but certainly nothing that would qualify as big, big budget mm -hmm. for China. Um, somehow they were interested to do films that still had more relevance yeah. to the Hong Kong tradition of filmmaking. So you see the kind of split even yeah. among the creative trio of Infano Affairs into two different types of filmmaking of during the past I would think 15 years. Mm -hmm. it, um, each with their own challenges and rewards and so um, that was what gave rise to that partnership. Because you do see, it was interesting what you, I'm just thinking to what you said then about the, some people will make, say, the leap to going to a higher level of filmmaking, whereas some people have obviously found something they're comfortable and happy and good at doing and stay, stay working on that level. Because... I know through somebody I know, they know um, the director Kevin Smith um, and obviously he stayed doing a specific sort of level of work whereas if you look at some of the people he's worked with like, well, Matt Damon, which ties into obviously The uh, Departed, Ben Affleck, people like that have sort of gone stratospherically high and um, he has stayed working at a, a set level that he's happy at producing what are considered cult sort of films. So. It's interesting to see we had a, a change in things, but if obviously people are good at what they do, they maybe don't need to see the urge to go to something else. I think I think a lot of times it also depends on the subject matter of the films concerned. Uh, because I'm talking about Chinese language films being produced by Hong Kong-based talent, then with the mainland Chinese market, of course, you need to skillet it your stories yes. to an audience that, historically speaking, would not have the same um, values or um, and 
values as well as um, sensitivity yeah. to storytelling than a Hong Kong-based audience. Um, some some directors and producers do not mind making that switch. Mm-hmm. Others feel more comfortable in staying within the niche. Mm-hmm. But in, unfortunately, it's a zero-sum game because... In one sense, the cap, the amount of capital that is being involved yeah. um, in here is moving towards the mainland Chinese side, meaning the projects that are more based on the traditional Hong Kong style of filmmakings, these days are receiving a significantly less yeah. share of that overall capital available for the industry. So once again, these directors have to ask themselves, do I want to keep making um, the the films that I was brought up with, but with a smaller budget and therefore uh, by the extension perhaps would be reaching a smaller audience yeah. base? I mean, but those are critical um, decisions that um, have to be made by creative personnel. And I've heard the other directors saying the, the same sort of problem, where because they're on such a niche locked product, they won't be able to get funding at a higher level. They have to sort of realistically ask for something lower, and it may or may not sort of become a giant thing that sells well in the future. But obviously, as you just said, they might be stuck aiming at. Well, these days, sometimes it's really um, a guessing game of the ability of distributions on a totally new um, distribution Mm -hmm. platform that may actually change some of that landscape. I mean, Netflix Mm -hmm. is much more internet base yeah. type of distribution is making fundamental changes in the rules of the distribution game and I would think that lower budget movies sometimes if promoted well on a social media basis as well as more digital base mm-hmm. basis you do actually yeah, you do see. yeah could sometimes reach a bigger audience than otherwise one would assume uh that they would not be able to do so on the basis that they may not have a big production budget as well as a distribution budget. But I think some of these rules are being tested now by new digital platform and social media, and and, uh, it's exciting to see that. But on the knock-on, that probably also leads to concerns about piracy as well, because... Paris has always been oh, a yeah. problem with the Hong Kong cinema yeah. in where we operate. So that's not something new to us. Um, obviously, yes, it's more difficult to control. But um, but you are seeing even because, I mean, if you think about the traditional model of big cinema chains and big distributors of the Hollywood model, at least you have half a dozen big studios and their subsidiaries that specializes in uh, more artsy film or non-mainstream mm-hmm. film I mean Sony with um, Columbia would have would have Columbia classes mm-hmm. under the Sony empire Fox would have something else right whereas I mean sometimes we look at certainly the 
internet content providers active in the um, in the mainland Chinese market or Chinese speaking territories of Asia, you are talking about less than three players. The mono the degree of monopoly is even more pronounced and under these circumstances yes there might be some degree of piracy but when you are but when you have such powerful conglomerate controlling um, the whole distribution platform um, then you know I mean there's another another set of um, operating uh, environments altogether so once again, it will be interesting to see how that develops. We, as uh, people who like to produce films and who like to see more interesting films being produced, would of course like to see different ways the films could be distributed mm-hmm. in order to facilitate more, dif- more means of films that could be produced. And what do you think the big push will be for the future then? I think I'll be moving to to mobile to mm-hmm. mobile technology would really have a role to play. Um, I think cinema is nice, but that would not be where the bulk of the revenue is. And production at the end of the day has to be predicated on workable financial funding basis. And uh, so, I mean, for the moment, it's a little boring to see all the summer blockbusters of these Marvel comics because it plays well in cinemas. And I think that would continue for some time. But what Netflix is doing is interesting. And I certainly hope that there would be further development on that front in order to really create a distribution platform where there would be more variety of films being done rather than just a handful of blockbusters of the 30th sequel of (laughs) Iron Man or something. (laughs) Or the, what's it, seventh Mission Impossible film or sixth Mission Impossible film that's coming out. I mean, I don't mind those being produced um, in parallel, but it's as long as they're not the only... Mm -hmm. Um, type of films being produced or or films that are drawing um, new audience to them I think part of the challenge of different types of films to be produced by creative people is to be able to draw newer audience into seeing different types of films very true Well, thank you very much for that, Jerry. Yeah, it's, it's been nice a pleasure. talking about these things.